Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. The topic of today is the convergence of science and religion with a question mark. I've titled my show Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, partly because I think in order to merge these two disciplines, we need to go beyond both science and religion, and that's what this is all about. And in today's age, we're starting to see certain barriers being broken down between science and religion, but on the whole, they remain two separate disciplines, two separate buildings, of study and worship. But on the other hand, there's a lot of people out there, including my guest today, Roy Borquet, who has spent a lot of time trying to find a way to get these two disciplines together. Uh, he has a book entitled The Merging of Two Worlds, The Convergence of Scientific and Religious Thought that we're going to be talking about. And Roy has also read my book, or at least skimmed it, the collapse of materialism, and we have certain sort of different approaches to this concept of science and religion, and I thought it'd be fun to sort of talk through some of this just in an open-ended conversation. And in sort of setting the tone again, I'd like to refer to a famous conversation uh, that was held between uh, Pierre-Simon Laplace, who was a French mathematician, and Napoleon, and this was in 1814, and Napoleon was asking Laplace about his current scientific theory, and Napoleon asked Laplace, well, why does your theory contain no mention of God? And Laplace famously said, I have no need of that hypothesis. And that's really the way that many modern scientists approach the theories of the world. They believe that they don't need a god or an intelligent designer or some mind behind the scenes in order to organize reality. But is this true? And this is something that's coming more and more to the front with such things as the fine-tuning of the universe, the multiverse, quantum theory, phantom limbs, parapsychology, spiritual experiences, a lot of things are happening that are starting to really pose this question more and more front and center, and that is, can we really explain the world without recourse to God or a spirit? As I said, my guest is Roy Bork. He's the author of the book, uh, The Merging of Two Worlds, The Convergence of scientific and religious thought. Uh, he was trained in nuclear power field in the U.S. Navy. He spent 25 years conducting 
independent research into scientific and religious studies, and interestingly, he's had a number of mystical experiences that shed light on his efforts to integrate religious concepts and scientific facts. So, Roy, thanks a lot for joining us. And first of all, let's let's um, let's define our terms a little bit here because you know we we have a lot of discussion out in the in the media, the public, and radio shows, TV shows about science and religion, but a lot of people may be using these terms separately. So why don't why don't you first sort of dis- define, describe how you would define science and then religion? What what do you mean when you use the word science? To me, science is a systematic study of how the world works, its processes, its laws, its forces, and its structures. And it is all mathematically determined. Uh, so scientific method is how to extract that information by observation of how the world actually works. And when I'm dealing with religion, it seems to be more in terms of how the mind is integrated with this whole network. So it becomes a perception. So religion contains metaphors, similes, it's all built on associations, uh, symbolism. So it's actually two different ways of seeing the world. So to religion to me is more in terms of, well, it's been, it's been catered to by organized religion, but for a lot of people who've had spiritual experiences, it, the organized religion doesn't really do it justice. Yeah, I think that in terms of science, one thing, I mean, the way I defined modern science is modern science likes to separate the observer from the observed, the scientist from the specimen, man from nature, and to examine the workings, the inner workings, the harmonies, the regularities of the physical world. So it's it's a very it's very similar, and I think that what is happening is can we really separate ourselves from nature? Is that a true separation, or or is it a model in order to allow scientists to conduct their 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 tests? How how do you look at that this this separation issue? Because as you know that is really underlying a lot of modern science theory, the separation of observer and observed. Yes, I, uh, when you go into science and uh, when you actually want it to make it work in your life, you have to integrate yourself with the, the way science works. Otherwise, as a separate being, you're just an observer. But if you want to live your life, then you have to integrate it with the laws that you're discovering. Yeah. So in many ways, when we're dealing with scientific discoveries, you have what's discovered in the laboratory, but then it becomes, well, how do we integrate that in life to improve the quality of life? And so there has to be an integration between how we conduct our lives and the laws we are uncovering. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's... 
that is a, a good way to put it. And it's not just, in other words, it's not just a a self-operating machine, the out the outside world that we are part of the world. Is that what you're saying? We're we're part of the world, and so therefore we need to um, not only understand it, but also find how we become part of it, how we become integrated in it, to go with the flow of nature. Is that is that uh, what you're referring uh, you, to? Here? You might say that life is a river, right? And if we want to find a, a good ending, then we have to channel our course to make sure that uh, we're going in the right direction. Yeah. It's very easy to take the laws of nature and use them or abuse them and to create uh, a bad results. Right. So the idea is to find out how the world works, but then how to integrate it with our lives so that the results produce something that improves the quality of life for ourselves and everybody around us. Yeah, you know, it's really um, interesting because, you know, the topic of global warming has gotten so much attention on so many different levels, you know, from the public interest groups to environmentalists. Uh, it's a topic in the Republican presidential debate. It will be. It was last time, I'm sure about whether people believe in it. And even yesterday, um, when I was out, uh, the my, my friends were talking about global warming and the latest developments. And, and the thing is, is that I think one of the messages of global warming is that we are starting to sense that we are part of the, of the universe. And that even though weather patterns are just so gigantic on a different scale, it's to me it's a metaphor that what humankind does does affect the physical world on a very real level, and and so I think that this is this uh, Roy and I don't I don't know, you know, whether there is or no, is not global warming is really a side issue in my book. I have two views on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, but but. It really does, to me, show that humankind is faced with living in a world that they're affecting. Okay, so let's let's hear your views on this on this topic. Go ahead. It is known in the past history that the world has existed without polar caps. In other words, what they say global warming existed at one time in the distant past, long before humans were here. Right. And uh, life proliferated during that time. So the question is, was, will global warming cause life to be adversely affected? Uh, environmentally, probably not. Uh, one of the major things that I see is that the polar caps, as they melt, they are increasing uh, ocean levels. Right. We have a lot of power systems that are built along rivers and ocean fronts because they need water for cooling. And so if the water continues to rise, a lot of our infrastructure may be adversely affected so that it will have an effect on on life as we know it. Right. If our power stations can no longer be run because the water levels are too high, uh, it, it's an issue. So how we affect the world has a direct effect on how the world affects us. 
Yeah, and I and I use it as more of a metaphor for how it's turning out that we are connected to the world on a very large level. And we don't even have to be spiritual on this point. This is this is why I think it's a metaphor. We don't have to be spiritual, but the fact that that humankind's activities such as the emission obviously of of greenhouse gases, carbon carbon dioxide, methane, etc., is changing the atmosphere such that the earth is warming is is to me a very significant statement that we can't treat nature as separate from what we are. That's that's the point I'm making. It's it's a very scientific illustration or metaphor of this interconnectedness. Now, well, just recently, with all the flooding that's happening in Texas, they right. say that is a direct result of uh, global weather patterns changing. Yes. Yes. So we are you we are directly affected by what we have done in the past. Yeah, and I think that this is something that we're that we're not going to be able to ignore. Now, I want to I want to give a little bit more background on you personally, so the listeners can understand where you're coming from. And it seems to me, uh, Roy, in rereading your book, that your your um, mystical experiences I'm going to call them mystical experiences. You may call them something else, but you've had quite a few experiences throughout your life, including when you were young that have seemed to have altered your perception towards the world. Is that is that correct? Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you why don't you describe one or two of them uh, and then and then then uh, talk about how they've changed your perspective because what's what is unique about you, and this is important, is that you come from a scientific background, but also a also you had like a lot of us a, re, a religious upbringing. So you've had a deal with these two competing perspectives but then you bring in you mix in these these mystical experiences and it changed you so why don't you talk about uh, the experiences a little bit here uh, yeah to introduce that idea I can say that if it wasn't for spiritual experience I would be an atheist today yeah when I was nine years old it was a big deal about science and or religion rather my mother and father were Catholics uh, that was a major topic, and how your life would proceed after your death was the main concept. Uh, they saw life as temporary, they saw life after death as eternal, so if you screwed up eternal eternity, uh, you, you messed up, right. and that's the way I was raised. So this concept of, of hellfire and brimstone was, was gnawing at me like a, a rock ready to tumble. So one day I thought I was asking a lot of questions in Sunday school. Uh, finally, a nun called me aside and she says, "These people can't answer your questions. You need to get along with God. Ask Him the questions and let Him answer." So when I left that day, it was like, "Okay." Uh, they basically told me I have to figure this out for myself. Right. So one day I was uh, at home. Nobody was at home. Uh, my my brother was away. My friends were away. I was out in the woods alone, and I decided I'm going to meditate on this idea of how do I communicate with God. And in the process, I came, it was like a, a spiritual door opening in which I felt that I'm looking for God in the wrong way. I was told that God is apart from reality, 
what is coming back at me is nature itself is answering the call and saying, look around you. Uh, everything that exists is a manifestation of some higher power, and that higher power is part of, of what you see, where the visible reveals the invisible. And so I stopped looking for God apart from reality, and I looked at reality and say, what am I not seeing? And in the process, I felt that nature is telling me how everything in nature is reducible to a common denominator. Uh, I was looking at a tree. An acorn fell by my feet. I was looking at the acorn. I saw leaves on the ground. Next to the acorn was a sprout growing out of the leaves. As I started going down through the leaves, I noticed that the layers underneath were changing back into soil. When I finally got to the base of the sprout, there was a decaying acorn and roots going into the soil. And so something is telling me there's something common here. There's something common between the soil and the tree. When I looked at the tree, I envisioned fruit that we eat I said, there's got to be something common between the fruit and the soil. And then I realized that fruit is food that we eat and it nourishes our body. So, again, there has to be something common. So everything I was looking at was telling me underlying everything you see is a common denominator. And that common denominator is the creative forces of nature. What is the common denominator? I really didn't know until 11 years later when I took a nuclear physics class, and they're talking about how when you break matter down, it all becomes singularity. Uh, everything is made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. The only difference is the manner in which they're assembled. Other than that, every electron in the universe is the same. Every proton is the same. Every neutron is the same. So my science was taking me in one direction, but then the very science that was causing me to question God was confirming the spiritual experience I had 11 years earlier. Yeah. So that it became an issue I couldn't put aside. It was like, there's something common between these two. Yeah. Spiritual experience, the science, is all merging together. It's two different ways of seeing the world, but it's all coming to the same conclusions. It's all coming from the same source. There's one source, it produces everything that exists, and if you want to call it God, you have to get away from the God is apart from reality concept, and you have to get away from the idea that God is some male deity. God is the life force of the cosmos. We can understand it through quantum mechanics, uh, but other than that, it has no sexual gender, and so... It didn't become a question, do I deny God, but it rather became, maybe I have to redefine what the word means. Okay, there's a lot, okay, there's a lot in there, and I'd like to um, unwrap it a bit. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm talking with Roy Bork, the author of The Merging of Two Worlds, The Convergence of Religious of, I'm sorry, the convergence of scientific and religious thought. And what we're doing here is we're trying to push the envelope and see, see uh, similarities between science and religion. And Roy, you just gave a very 
I think, insightful um, sort of account of what led you to see sort of this overlap. And I like to I like to drill into this a little bit because you basically have two things occurring here which have um, precedent in both science and religion. First of all, uh, there's a lot of scientists that when you really push them, they're gonna they're gonna say that the, that that God is the laws of nature, and I just got done um, sort of revisiting this concept again um, on a, a couple shows ago. For example, Paul Davies has a book called The Mind of God. Paul Davies being the uh, professor, I think, astrophysics in Arizona, I think University of Arizona, or it could be Arizona State. Uh, that title, The Mind of God, comes from a Stephen Hawking statement in Stephen Hawking's book, uh, A Brief History of Time, where he says that the goal of physics is to understand the mind of God. And then, to add on to that, Albert Einstein, even though he's considered to be one of the founding fathers of modern physics, and in fact he is, he was he was really a pantheist, when, which, is, which is somebody who believes that nature is God. And so we're seeing, so to me, what this is really showing is that if you go to this, to this position where you recognize that nature itself, and I mean the physical world, the trees, the grass, the sky, the stars, is a manifestation of let's call it source to be neutral here then then what science does is observe the regularities of the physical world we know that but now at least we know that there is this interconnection that that spirit is not separate from from nature now is this is this sort is this along the lines of what of what your insight was Roy, you see, you see, the point I'm making here is that science itself, to me, is very close to the pantheistic position that nature is God. That's basically what I had felt at at the age of nine, and confirmed later. Yeah, was that if you wanted to understand God, you had to look at nature. Right, right, and and now, that. There's an old definition of theology. Uh, it's it's contrary to the modern definition. And it divided theology into two branches. And one of the branches is to understand God through his works by way of nature and reason. To me, that is a scientific process. And the other branch was to understand God by revelation, which is what I would call the spiritual experiences that people have. Right. And you can't separate those two. They're two different ways of seeing the world, but they're looking at the same world, but from two perspectives. So the idea that nature is revealing God, the visible reveals the invisible. It goes back to that basic concept. Yeah, yeah. If you want to know who the Creator is, look at what is doing the creating. Right, right. And this now... A lot of people at this point, and I, I want to talk about quantum field theory in a second here, but a lot of people at this point would say, well, are we both intelligent designers? What is your, do you consider yourself an intelligent designer or something else? Uh, I would have to say yes. Uh, 
you take a look at atomic structure. You take an electron and a proton, put them together, you have a hydrogen atom. The hydrogen atom has structure. As far as I know, nobody can tell you why electrons exist. They can't tell you why protons exist. They can't tell you where the structures come from. They can only tell you that through laboratory experiments, this is the weight and mass of an electron. This is the weight and mass of a proton. This is the structure of a hydrogen atom. And that's as far as they can go. Right. As far as why is it so, they can't tell you. Right. Uh, the, the, elect the atom can put any engineer to shame. Because of what the atoms can do, it has created all the things that lead up to where we pick up the, the ball and then start making our own creations. In order for atoms to create life, it, it has gone through enormous creative capacity. Now, if everything was purely random, as many atheists believe, I would think that the number of flaws would far exceed the number of successes. But that is not what you see. You find that the number of successes just keep building upon each other. And when you look at the evolutionary process and you look at the inventiveness of human nature, you find that even human nature follows the patterns of natural selection. So we, we aren't doing anything that nature hasn't already done. We're just adding to what nature has built us up to so far. But when we put inventions down on paper, it's not just random scrambling. We are purposely determining what product do we want to produce based on what do we have to start with. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I have two points here. Um, first of all. I think the major, I think if you're going to add up the major flaws or the major weaknesses of the naturalistic, materialistic, whatever, whatever um, uh, adjective we want to use on the current scientific worldview, I use, of course, materialism. But the, the, to me, the number one flaw is the lack of an organizing force. I mean, there's other flaws that are way up there. But if you want to pick up one that, that is really unanswered, by modern sciences, where is the organizing force? And my example here, and I'll pick up your example, would be natural selection. You know, it's funny that Darwin called it natural selection. Well, what is the nature doing the selecting? This has always been sort of, he's, he's gotten away with that for over a century, and it's funny because uh, a recent book uh, by Ernest Meyer that he wrote before he passed away, Ernest Meyer being the Harvard uh, biologist who was really a champion of Darwin into the 20th and early 21st century. In his newest book called What is Evolution, he takes the word uh, natural out, and he just uses the word selection. But it raises the question, what's doing the selecting? And, and to me, that is the biggest the the biggest flaw. The other thing, and I'd like to have you comment on that in a second, but the other thing is this concept of intelligent design, Roy, I think is very rich. And I think one of the reasons it's gotten a bad name, 
is because a lot of people will will say, well, why are why is the uh, universe organized? Where did the laws of nature come from? And the answer is, well, God, God. Well, how do you know that? Because I read it in the Bible. See, t- see, to me, the flaw of intelligent design is when it stops the scientific reasoning process at the words of the Bible. Because I think you also have to delve into the words of the Bible. I think you also have to critique those words. See, I don't think you just stop and say, God did it. And now maybe this is where the two of us are, are, are uh, apart here. But, see, I would not classify myself as an intelligent designer because I don't think, I think you got to question the words of the Bible, the Koran, or whatever else, as much as you're questioning Stephen Hawking's view of the world. So I said a lot there, but first, with regard to, and you could take those in any order if you want to comment on, on those two points I just made, um, which is the lack of an organizing force. Uh, do you think that that is a, f- a flaw in your mind of modern science? Well, it is. And to go back to the concept of God is saying that God did it isn't an answer. Right. Uh, the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't tell us how. It doesn't tell us anything about God. It merely says that God created. And so when you revert back to the word and say, well, God did it, that's not an answer. It's, it's just a... You're substituting a word that you really can't explain. Right, right. It's like a placeholder. So, yeah. yeah, and so it, it's not an answer. And that's what the scientist says, is, well, that's not really an answer. You're merely taking a belief that there's a God and saying that God did it. But like I say, the Bible doesn't tell you anything about God, and it doesn't tell you how God created anything. So now you have to take it further than that and say, okay, what do we know about God, and how does God create things? And to me, that's where the scientific method helps to explain the processes by which things come into existence. Yeah, and and it, so... Yeah. It's not just the same God. There, there is some underlying force, but you have to dwell into it. Yeah, and that that leads to the the quantum field theory a little bit here, which is something that you know there is there are some there is some literature on the zero point field being God. There are some books on this topic, and just just to define terms a little bit here, I'll I'll try to for the listener I'll try to sort of to define what I'm talking about, and that is quantum field theory and the zero-point field essentially is saying that there's a, there is a field of energy that is, that is a product of the uncertainty that we have over, over whether a particle really exists in a certain location or whether any um, vacuum actually exists in space. Uh, the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle essentially says that we can never have exact knowledge of a particle's location and momentum, and we can't have exact knowledge of the energy um, uh, amount, energy quantity in a given, uh, va- in a given um, part of space. And so therefore that uncertainty creates this fuzziness 
this probability, these waves, which creates sort of a vibrating field. Okay, and I put those in my own words, and Roy, you probably have a different way to put it. But the point is, is that modern physics has essentially said that the world is quantum, quant, quant, is a quantum field. It's not a, a field of vacuum, which is nothingness and a bunch of particles moving through it. There's an interconnectedness to it. Okay. Part of quantum has to do with uh, energy levels. Uh, what I'm saying is, when we study electromagnetic energy, they find that the particles of energy, they call them photons, have discrete energy levels. And so it's not any value from zero to whatever. They're very specific values. If you take light through a prism, divide it into a band of colors and if you divide it even further it starts to break down into lines and those lines are very specific and so there's a place where there is an energy level and then in between there's nothing and then there's another energy level and it, it, it increases by increments it doesn't increase by any value there's very specific increments incremental values and that's where the idea of quantum comes from is that it, it's packets of energy and they're very discrete and that's an unexplainable concept of why that is so that's part of the mystery of science so science can explain what it does and they can show you all of the spectral analysis but as far as why does it do that uh, they haven't come to the answer yet. Right, right. The whole question, I mean, it's very nice to observe that energy is 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 quant quantized or quantized, whatever the word is, but yeah. to but to explain why that is so. I mean, I think one of the most uh, to me amazing parts of this, uh, Roy, is the concept of virtual particles, which is something that if the American public actually had an understanding of what these things are, they would shake their heads and say, are you kidding me? Are you trying to tell me that there are these virtual particles just bopping back and forth between all the matter in the universe holding it together and that the Big Bang just happened to create this incredible network of virtual particles? And, and, just, and just, to, to, just to describe what I'm talking about, uh, Modern science, and this is physics, believes that what holds the world together, an example would be the atom and the strong nuclear force. What holds the atom together is the strong nuclear force, which is mediated by gluons. These are, these are virtual particles which really don't exist um, in terms of having an independent existence. They're really operating sort of in the shadow land of quantum theory. Uh, they go back and forth between the, the proton and nucleus holding that atom together. Uh, and so this, this to me, Roy, is one of sort of the signs of the time that, okay, it's, dear scientists, it's very nice to know how complicated the atomic structure is, but how in the heck did that amazing engineering feat, as you put it, come from randomness? Yeah, that, that is one of the questions, because there's nothing random about how the atom works. Right, right. It's right. very precise. Right, 
right? I, like I, I say, every every atom has the same structure as every other atom, and there's no difference, and it doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter if they're here on Earth or whether they're on the sun, whether they're in another galaxy. They're all the same. And the randomness doesn't exist at the subatomic level. The so-called randomness only exists when you start talking about increased uh, structures. So you're talking about complex structures, uh, life forms. Now they get into the so-called randomness theory. Right, right. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Uh, speaking with Roy Bork, the author of The Merging of Two Worlds, The Convergence of Scientific and Religious Thought. And we're sort of trying to push the envelope here on finding common ground or finding a way to converge science and religion. And, and Roy, along the line here, we're talking about the quantum field theory. And you had this insight that, uh, that the quantum field theory is God or is a manifestation of God. Can you just elaborate upon what you mean by that when you equate um, the quantum field with God? Well, let's take the human body. We are made up of organic systems all integrated and networked together. So you've got skeletal, muscular, circulatory, they all work together. The systems can be broken down into individual parts. So you have organs, muscles, bones, etc. The parts can be broken down into cells. The cells can be broken down into molecules. Molecules can be broken down into atoms. Atoms can be broken down into what we call the quantum fields. And the quantum fields is the one thing that is common to everything. They are the source from which all things come back to where they go. And so, to me, that is where you find the creator is at the quantum field level everything that exists from that point starts from that point and returns to that point so that's why I equate God with the quantum field is because that's the source from which everything comes and that's the source to where everything goes okay so now we move okay so now we take a step uh, farther here and last week I had on my show Amika Swami, uh, who is famous for a, his consciousness-based worldview. And he is a uh, quantum physicist. Um, has, he taught for a number of years in Oregon, University of Oregon. Uh, and he has, you know, for the past 20 years, written a lot of books uh, sort of bridging uh, quantum physics and and spirituality. According to Amit and others, there you can't separate the, the quantum world from consciousness. That consciousness is sort of integrated into, into, into the quantum field because it's consciousness that makes this decision on what to observe. And that's, that's the way uh, Amit would put it. What, because, because when you go there now, when you go there, all of a sudden you have sort of a a source of quantum field theory that is equated with consciousness. Do, do you go to that step, or do you think the quantum field is something separate from consciousness? 
I think that consciousness can be derived from quantum field. Okay. Okay. You uh, go. When the scientist is developing a laboratory experiment, he is looking at the natural world, and then he is trying to envision what he can derive from the natural world. So he comes up with a hypothesis. So I believe this hypothesis. Now he has to try to prove whether that is true. So his mind is somehow synchronizing with how the world works to come up with that hypothesis. And then he further examines the hypothesis to see if it holds true. So if his mind is not in harmony with natural laws, his experiments are not going to go anywhere. His mind has to synchronize with natural law in order to make any sense out of it. And and this is that this is that commonality this that commonality that that you've been talking about that there is this, I mean I completely agree with you and this goes to the eureka moments, um, Roy where there is this you know a scientist will have a flash of inspiration and find a harmony of of nature and it happened to Kepler happened to Newton happened to Einstein happens to all the great all the great physicists or scientists seem to have this eureka moment, but that what you're saying, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that that cannot happen. The eureka moment cannot happen. The insight into nature cannot happen unless there was a commonality between the scientific mind and nature itself. Yeah, because that eureka moment happens at the moment of synchronicity. Right. Your mind suddenly realizes how that particular, well, it's like Einstein and the concept of time and the speed of light. When he realized that there was this time dilation that would explain why the speed of light never changes, that was that eureka moment. But his mind had to synchronize with, that's how the world works. And finally his mind saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you see, this is, this is where, just, just so we're, we're, um, we're sort of advancing this discussion, I think this is where my perspective is different than yours and that is I think see I would agree with Amit Goswami I'm a little different than him but I would go I would agree with him that the the physical world is a manifestation of consciousness as opposed to consciousness being a derivation or a outcome of the quantum field theory see I, I go from inner to outer on this point you seem to be saying that the quantum field theory is 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 primary and that through evolution consciousness arises out of quantum field theory or over the quantum field or something and then and at that point and and they're the same on that score they're the, they're the same thing on that score um, where I come at it from the inner towards the outer okay now I'm not saying yeah, obviously there's a lot of similarities between the two because you sort of wind up in the same spot. But I think that's where our emphasis is are a little different, Roy. So right. so so that's so so that's um that's really interesting. Now you, you have a lot of of uh, discussion here about in your book about Eastern philosophy as well. And you know, I think this is important because if there's gonna be a merger of science and religion, 
you have to include, to me, you have to include all religions. You can't just include Christianity, or you can't just include, you know, um, Islam. You, you sort of have to find a room for everything. So what, what uh, insights have you learned from Eastern philosophy, uh, Roy, that have molded your thinking on this topic of science and religion? Eastern philosophy, the part that I saw was the differentiation between carnal, or what we call animal passion, and spirituality, or this synchronicity with creative power with how the universe works. And it follows the idea of evolution that we evolve from an animal, but the animal is still a part of us. And the animal passions actually draw us down. It, it prevents us from being truly creative in a positive way. So a lot of religion deals with this carnal versus spiritual battle that goes on. So the, the carnal part is sexual desire is a big one. Uh, if you don't keep it in check, it, it makes a mess of the world. Uh, so power-hungry people is another one. That's all part of the animal passions. So you have selfishness, sex, and power are the animal passions. And then you start getting into the higher-ordered spiritual areas. And that is when truly creative ideas come out of that. And you have to suppress these animal passions in order for creativity to work in a positive direction. Otherwise, you end up with the mad scientist that uses creative ability to get what I want versus helping humanity progress to higher-ordered uh, levels of development. And so that's what I see as part of uh, the... Eastern philosophy, and I found a lot of connections between Eastern philosophy and the Bible, which, unless you understand Eastern philosophy and have read it, and have read the Bible, it's hard to see where the two merge together. But there's actually a lot of things in the Bible that are derived from Eastern philosophy. Uh, the spiritual versus carnal battle is very clear in Christianity. Uh, Paul talks about it a lot in the uh, epistles. Some of the concepts of how the tabernacle was developed in the in the Old Testament. Uh, it's actually built on the Eastern philosophy model of the human body. Well, well, there's also the famous quote about the kingdom of heaven being inside of us. I th I think I think that to me God is within you. Yeah, 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 is within yeah is within you. I mean that to me is very very similar to the. Um, Vedanta that that the self is God. I mean, it's it's a very. I mean, I think that these these are very good observations. Where are you coming? You know, you're coming from a Western religious standpoint, just like I do. But where we're where we are used to like projecting um, God up in the sky as a separate creature, where. We were taught. Right, 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 exactly. We were taught because because people got a little carried I mean, in my opinion, people got a little carried away, and they still do with the worship part of the whole thing um, instead of living by instead of living the example. Uh, 
and mm-hmm. and and uh, integrating the the principles into your life as opposed to you know um, having ha- having the 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 place in line or having the best way of worshiping the best church or the nicest statue whatever but this is that's a different topic but there is a lot of to me I think you're right there is a lot of similarity the thing I really like or a lot of common ground the, the, one of the things I really like about Eastern religion is that to me it it talks it it has this um, this aura of this rising consciousness of this greater awareness you know nirvana uh, moksha where we're sort of released from these individual existences and we join with one you know it, it's very it's, it's put in very mystical language but I like the progression the I, I call you know and there's a lot of books on this it's whether it's evolution of consciousness or spirituality where you know I think you know uh, Pierre del Jardin his famous book the phenomena of man talks about you know even if Darwin's right then consciousness is going to evolve till it realizes that it's 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 part of the cosmos you know it's so so that's one thing that I like about uh, Eastern philosophy and I think that you deserve credit for for touching that base frankly and trying to incorporate that into into the way you're looking at things now you you had written about the about the Mayan calendar and of course that that um, I don't know how to describe it. Obviously, the world did not end, but but in two thousand, I guess it was eight. But December, December twelfth, two thousand. December is twenty first, two thousand twelve. Two thousand twelve. Okay, what is what is the end of the Mayan calendar? Great. What is what is your uh, you know three years later? What is your perspective on what the role of the Mayan calendar is? It was signaling the the end of one era, and the the end of the Mayan calendar would have been the beginning of another one. Right. Uh, what we're seeing right now is a shift in how humanity is looking at the world. Uh, evolution has followed a practice up until a certain point, and now you're seeing the spirituality starting to emerge on a very large increasing level in the recent years. So it's almost, you know, to me, the end of the Mayan calendar was not the end of the world. It was the end of an era. So life evolved up until the human point, and now we are starting to integrate together into global concepts. It's like human systems, and when I say systems, it's like our development of education, our development of energy, are all integrating almost into a organism of a higher order, like the Earth itself is becoming one. And we're all trying to figure out how we fit into that. And we can go back to global warming and say this is one of the issues that we're dealing with on a global level. It's like we're trying to integrate with Mother Earth to find that balance. Where do we go from here? And this is the first time in the history of life that we are actually able to leave this planet. And I believe that the end of the Mayan calendar was the beginning of where do we go from here. 
Yeah, I'm, so, yeah, 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 I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead. Built up life to this point, now it's starting to consider possibilities of migrating elsewhere. Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, frankly, I think that whether the Mayan calendar has real-world scientific validity or not, I am encouraged that some people take it as a sign of a new era because Lord knows we need a new era. We need a new era where we all have greater respect for the world and other people and we can't stop, you know, continue to live in these separate cubicles and pretend as if those who follow different religions are enemies or those with different nationalities are, are adversaries. And I think that this all goes towards integrating uh, science with religion, of, of integrating the teachings of the world's great religions uh, into our lives. And to me, Roy, that is, the, that is really the, the message here to, for, for my purposes. And I see that in, in your writing as well. If, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I see it as, as this waking up, this new era of this holism is really understanding that we're all in this together and we could and we could have this conversation in scientific terms not just in some kind of um, sort of mystical spiritual you know gobbledygook that that's sort of what, what I think is happening where I think we're starting to see more legitimacy more scientific uh, rigor Put in, in put into these discussions. What is your thinking on that? When you're dealing with science and religion separately, they they don't help each other. Yeah, it's when you integrate the two together and you look at spirituality and you don't exclude science from that that you're able to give it direction. And so, spirituality is trying to develop ideas of how to make the world better. But then you need the scientific background to know, well, how do we do that? Right. How do you go from point A to point B? How do you improve upon a situation if you don't have the knowledge to back it up? Anybody can come up with a utopian idea in their mind. But unless you have the scientific background of how the world works, you can't create that. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just the scientific background how the world works because I I do think I do think there is a theory which I'm going to call mapping. They're sort of like figuring out where to go, um, what the rules of the game are. But there's the prove it. You know, science to me is sort of as I said before is the is like Missouri. It's the show me state. Prove it. Repeat the experiment. Do it. Do it for me. So that I could see it and touch it and measure it, okay. And there and there's nothing wrong with that. And but and and nobody. In fact, that's always been to me the number one dividing line between science and religion. And you said it earlier when you talked about uh, revelation versus understanding the works of of nature. You know, some people, you know, the scientists would criticize religion by saying that they really can't. Uh, factor in or deal with revealed truth, revealed truth because there's no way to test it. Okay, and then the religious people respond to say, "Well, it doesn't mean it's not true," and, and you know, and so we go back and forth with this discussion. But I've always said 
that if a if a religious or scientific statement is true, then it should be testable. And I want to I'm sort of want to end here on a um, something that to me is amazing that it hasn't got more attention that goes to your the quantum field um, theory and then maybe you could comment on it and that is if you read a lot of the sci- the leading scientific books right now um, and that would be by Lisa Randall St- Steven Weinberg and Paul Davies they talk about dark energy you know dark energy being this invisible force that is a supposedly accelerating the expansion of the universe and it turns out that when they measure the quantum energy of, of, of outer space, this quantum field, this quantum energy that's supposed to be propelling the universe, that there's actually 10 to the 120th power more energy in their equations than actually exists in outer space. There's an order of magnitude error here of 10 to the 120th power. And so Steven Weinberg says, and he, he won the, the Nobel Prize in Physics um, in the 80s for electro, his electroweak theory. He says that, be, that this is the biggest problem, the biggest fine-tuning issue in modern science, and that's why he believes in the multiverse. And I say that that is the biggest cop-out I've ever heard. What they're really discovering is that the world is finely tuned, and it can only be finely tuned if there's a mind-spirit source behind it. And so this, this to me, is something, I don't know if you follow the dark energy issue, but it's not getting much coverage. It sounds esoteric, but it is a big, big issue right now, uh, and I think that... Um, a lot of these leading scientists are really struggling over why is the force of dark energy so small when their own theories say it should be 10 to 120 power greater. So, so this, this is, to me is something that's very important where science is starting to prove that there is a design. And that's, that's the point I really want to end with. And Roy, why don't you give any final comments on what I just said or anything else, and then we'll... Uh, We'll, we'll um, come to the end here. All right. Well, you take the, the moon and its orbit around the Earth. Uh, we can determine the force of gravity holds the moon in orbit. Uh, the, the Earth is held in orbit around the sun by the force of gravity. So we use gravity as the basis of what holds everything together. And when they look at a galaxy and they say there are things moving around the outer perimeter of the galaxy that shouldn't be where they are based on their speed because either there isn't enough mass to hold it together and so they had to put more mass into the equation to make it work right that's where the idea of dark matter comes from right in other words what we can see doesn't fit the bill the equations don't work unless we put more mass in than is observable so, and it, it's a huge number. So, th- the more they look at the world, the more they realize that what you can see is only a small fraction of what's there. And it's really coming down to the bottom line that what we know is far less than what we don't know. Right, right. And too much, there's too much of the impression that I believe modern science leads that they have it all figured out 
and I and in your book I think I wrote I wrote down the page I think it's like 100 page 180 you have like 25 a list of 24 25 different th- different mysteries fine-tuning mysteries oddities of nature that are unexplained by modern science including for example the origin of life and and to me Roy I'm going to end on this point that what what I believe we've seen in the last 100 to 200 years since the time of Darwin is a reaction by modern science against biblical literalism and that reaction has led them to equate anything that attacks science as being as being um, as being orthodox literalism instead of taking a step back and saying let's not use names let's not pretend as if uh, the God that we're arguing against is the one with the beard in the sky. Let's let's suppose that underneath it all is an intelligent spirit, a source, uh, a, and even a quantum field. Then we start, to me, translating this discussion into the language of science into instead of this outworn debate between say Darwin and creationism or science and the Bible so we need to move beyond that dichotomy and move it to an area where we start using different terminology and start moving beyond these archaic uh, impressions of God so so that I think is is where I think it's going and I, I think that your book frankly is a very good contribution to the topic so, Roy, what are you up to these? So, so what are you up to? You have another book in the works, or what are you doing? I am, I am writing another book, and what it does is it talks about how, how ideas that exist today, where do they actually come from? Yeah. And we assume that you know through time we've solved all the problems, when in fact uh, many of the problems still exist. Yeah. Uh, Einstein's, uh, not Einstein's, Aristotle's crystal spheres held up the planets and stars for almost 2,000 years. And there are concepts in religion that are just as flawed, but they're not being addressed. Right. No, no, no that's, that sounds, that sounds really good. Well, when you're, when you're finished with it, we'll definitely have you back on the show, on the show, and we've run out of time. And Roy, you, do you have a website, um, that you could tell Scienceandreligionconverging.com. Uh, if you look up the book, The Merging of Two Worlds, it will lead you to it. Right. Right. If you look up my name, Roy E. Bork, it will lead you to it. Right. Uh, the book is available in ebook. It's on Google Plus. It's available on Amazon.com. Okay. Yeah, and again, this is this is a this is a must-read book for those who are. Are interested in 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 some inspiring and deep thinking on the merger of science and religion. And once again, this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Roy, thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.